Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. On today's episode, I am excited to introduce you to Erica Hornthal, a board-certified dance movement therapist and licensed clinical professional counselor. She is the founder and CEO of Chicago Dance Therapy and creator of the Dance Therapy Advocates Summit. As a licensed talk therapist, Erica knows that words only get us so far, whereas if we're willing to tap into its power, the body can take us the rest of the way as we process emotions and strengthen our mental health. Erica is also the author of Body Aware, Rediscover Your Mind-Body Connection, Stop Feeling Stuck, and Improve Your Mental Health with Simple Movement Practices. Okay, so I loved this conversation and Erica's insights about the possibilities of movement and dance. Personally, I have always loved dance and the way that it makes me feel. So her ideas about the positive impacts of movement for mental health really struck a chord with me. We also had the chance to answer a wonderful question from a listener in Lagos, Nigeria about emotion regulation. I hope you love hearing this conversation. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are the first ever board-certified dance movement therapist who has ever appeared on Reimagining Love. That's probably true for a lot of platforms, and I'm happy to be the first, and hopefully not the last. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay, so do you want to guess what I did to get myself in the zone before this conversation? I'm going to guess it's something... Uh, body-based. My go-to is always breathing because while we're doing that all the time, maybe a little impromptu dance party. I did a total impromptu dance party. Uh Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. I went to the basement. I put on my work. I just chose a random song from my workout playlist. It was a great Black Eyed Peas song and I just moved my body. And I thought as I danced, why the heck don't I remember to do this every single time because I just felt so good. And dance has been a part of my life, my whole entire life. I think a lot of people ask themselves that because when they remember to move or they engage in some type of dance movement, improvisation, they do, they feel better and kind of wonder, why did I ever stop doing this? Why don't I do this more often? And so I don't think you're alone in that response. And I hope it gives people permission who don't identify as dancers or that don't have any dance ability to try it out themselves and see how it feels. Okay. Well, in a moment, I do want you to tease apart because it's you're a dance movement therapist. So, okay, where is the line between movement and dance? And I want to hear you talk about all of that. But before we get to that, 
Well, I would like to know what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships and what has it been teaching you lately? Well, I think it's ironic that a dance movement therapist is going to say this, but my first intuitive thought is speaking my needs that I forget that people that I'm in relationship with don't one always know to ask what I need or how they can support me and that I can't assume that they know what I need. So speaking, however, doesn't always mean words. It it is still an embodied process for me. And it's been recognizing when my needs aren't being met, especially on a body level and being really proactive about that. It's been something I've been working on, especially through the pandemic. It's really, really helped, but it's also about practicing what I preach and having kids. That relationship has definitely allowed me to sit in this more often than I think I did prior. <laughs> when you say body bait, are you saying that you you will get cues from your body that you are not asking for your needs to be met? Like how, what, how do you... What do you mean by that? That it's still asking for your needs to be met is still body-based for you. What does that mean? It becomes about the way my body is showing up in my environment or in the spaces. And the thing is, it often gets to the point where the thoughts are really loud in my head and I don't even realize how long my body's been carrying it. So as an example... This can happen, obviously, in our romantic relationships. I'm going to use the example of like uh, child, mother-child relationship. I have young kids and they, they love to cling to you, right? They love to hang on you. And it's endearing and it's bonding. But I recognize that the smaller I become, right, the more confined my space is, especially when people are on me or clinging to me the less capacity I have to think and to breathe. And so that happens quite often and it can be going on for 20 or 30 minutes before all of a sudden I get to this place where I'm like, "Ah, I need space. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody touch mommy. (laughs) Right, right. So I'm really paying attention and really trying to track what happens, what is going on, right? So that instead of getting to the place of, whoa, I need space, I can kind of gauge that as we go, right? And so I can be there for my kids and give them a hug, or I can, you know, help a family member through something. And I can also take care of myself in the process. I can say, you know what, I'm going to think on this for a moment, or let me step outside and get a breath of fresh air. You know, obviously I'm not going to leave my kids alone, but I can take them with me. Like it's a way to model that, wow, my body is giving me a sensation. I'm feeling something viscerally and that that's happening a lot longer. The duration, like that is there long before my mind comes on board and says, hey, you need to do something about this. (laughs) You're feeling crowded. You're Uh feeling overwhelmed. And then that's usually when I will end up saying something. But for me, it's been about being proactive, noticing wow, this is not a posture or a shape that feels comfortable, that feels like my own. It feels like someone is kind of putting that posture onto me. And so either I can take it back in the moment or I can, you know, embrace that posture, kind of give in or move into that feeling instead of feeling like it's out of my control. I love that. I'm flashing on moments when I was a young mom. I know 
that feeling of being crowded and wanting more space oftentimes for me came with an attendant feeling of guilt. Like I would have this parallel track in my mind of like what, like a good mom has endless capacity for snuggles and clings and touching. And so there would be like that part would be playing in my mind, making it harder for me to be proactive when in fact it's so loving to notice when our capacity is getting filled so that we can be proactive and asking for space in a mindful, loving, gentle way, rather than overriding it, which does put us more at risk of being cranky and irritable with the little people who want so much touch. Right. And I I think that was it for me too. You know, it was this voice in my head that kept saying, you should want this. You should be okay with this. And no one ever said that we needed to be okay with people encroaching on our personal space all the time, right? <laughs> and, and it's not about me saying, get away. I don't want this. I do want this. I love the connection, you know, whether it's family or romantic relationship, like touch is so important. And so is owning what touch we need and even recognizing, I can see that you need me right now. I can see that you really want to love on mommy, Let's give each other a really big hug, you know, and a kiss. And can we do a self hug, right? Now can we hug our teddy bear? It's also teaching independence in a way. And it's been a learning curve, but it's been really wonderful because I don't have those moments of explosion that were happening so often because I was feeling so overwhelmed and so confined by my physical space. And when we're confined in our bodies, we are confined in our minds. We just, we don't have the capacity to think and to regulate. A really important side effect of you modeling and verbalizing that with your little ones is it also starts to teach them about bodily autonomy, right? And you, we all as parents want our kids to understand like to notice when touch feels really good and nourishing and when touch feels like too much and how to ask for a bit of space. So you're modeling something that I'm sure you also really want your kids to learn, which is that they get to also speak up when touch is yummy and I want more and when touch doesn't feel good and needs to stop. Absolutely. And there are certain movement patterns that are developed as we grow up, you know, from those early ages, from like infancy to to two or three, actually, through all of childhood. And so I've also tried to notice that and recognize, wow, it's really frustrating for me when you keep ramming your head into me. (laughs) Because they do that, right? But from a developmental standpoint, like that's actually a natural rhythm. It's a movement pattern that when I experience that, I think, wow, this is right on target with development. So I don't necessarily speak that out loud because a three-year-old isn't going to really care about their development, but I can, I can call it out in terms of like, wow, that was really strong or wow, you're super strong or how else can we do that? I can model the movement in another way, right? Because we want to model those good behaviors. And we also want to know for ourselves that there are appropriate ways and needs for those movements. So I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to silence it or say, stop that but I want to hold space for how it feels for me and what they need, right? Wow, you're expressing yourself. This is great. Can we do that to our, our toy? Can we do that to you know, our teddy bear? There are other ways to meet those movement needs and for parents or you know loved ones to also say, but I, and this is what I need as well. It's hard to hold both, but we can. I mean, it's this is a place where your training must be incredibly helpful is that you can validate that as a normative 
movement pattern versus getting yourself spiraled into like, why is my kid doing this? And what's wrong? And are they being aggressive? And all that stuff that we as parents can get into of like, when we don't understand something, we're at risk of moving into a place that is frightened or can be pathologizing or worrisome. So you can look at the movement pattern and be like, oh, I know that movement pattern. It makes sense why my child is needing this now. And I can support the need for my child to move their body in this way while not being the receiving end. What my son used to call the baby hippo move. That was what he would call it. He would like <laughs> ram his head like a baby hippo. I don't know why it was called that, but I remember it well. <laughs> yeah. And actually there are patterns like the, the movement patterns are, are ramming. I mean, that actually is the, mm-hmm. the, the name of this movement pattern and spurting. Yeah. A lot of parents will kind of resonate with, oh yeah, that, oh wow, that happens. Uh-huh. Or yes, uh-huh. I remember that. You know, I think it's important for people to know that we replay these patterns as adults too. So it might not be your spouse literally ramming their head into you, but there can definitely (laughs) be times where we feel like we're getting attacked, right? We feel like we're getting kind of punched in the gut. And again, these are ways that when we're tapped into our body and noticing the sensations that come with them, we can learn to relate to our spouses, our romantic partners, our family members in different healthy ways, instead of just continuing these really unhealthy cycles. Mm-hmm. Like the energy of feeling like your partner is ramming into you, the energy of like the, what your, your partner's words or behavior is like a punch in the gut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it can physically feel that way, but yes, I don't, I don't actually mean like a physical punch that obviously is inappropriate. So, well, I love that you're talking about, right, that our bodies are always in relation to the people around us. So when you said that, it felt like a punch in the gut, meaning that there really is a level at which my body felt the impact of those words. I think so often when a couple is in conflict, the words are going back and forth without attention to what's happening inside of. Yeah, and that simply by paying attention or drawing awareness to what's going on on a body level, you know, whether it's communicating without words or just taking a moment to notice what's happening in my body as I'm saying those words, or even after I felt those words, it's really eye-opening, right? Because people start to understand or, or notice the narrative, right? Notice how my body is always saying what's going on Sometimes my words or my mind actually kind of overrides that, minimizes it, gaslights it. And it can be very eye-opening for the other person to witness, right? To just see what's going on in my body, but also what's going on in my, in the person who, who I'm in this relationship with body. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Erica, back up and just talk us through what is dance movement therapy and what is the power that this kind of therapy holds for clients? Yeah. So Traditionally, dance movement therapy is a psychotherapy that uses movement to help an individual express physical, emotional, cognitive, spiritual, kind of like this holistic approach, right, to to the person, to the individual. It's sometimes confusing and a little weighted, right, because the word dance kind of comes with a stigma. Therapy oftentimes comes with a stigma, But years ago, it was actually known as dance therapy. It's a creative arts therapy, similar to art therapy, music therapy. It's under the same umbrella. And because a lot of people didn't identify with the dance piece, rather than throwing dance out the window, they started to incorporate movement. So it became dance hyphen movement therapy. The way I like to explain it is 
most of our communication is housed in our nonverbals. It's housed in our body. And yet we rely on our words to address most of our mental health concerns or most of our relationship issues. Oftentimes it's our words that are getting us into trouble or keeping us stuck all the while not realizing that our body is playing out those patterns as well. So for me, dance movement therapy with my clients has really been about embracing all of our communication, the 90% that's housed in the body and the 10%-ish that's housed in the tone and the words themselves. And so you don't have to be a good dancer. You don't have to have any certain type of rhythm. It's about really uncovering this mind-body connection and using it for a holistic approach to wellness. When you meet with a client, do you meet with them in studio? Like what, does a, what does a session look like with you? Yeah, yeah. I, I call it a studio. Maybe that's just the dancer in me that's like, we will go to the studio. <laughs> but once I had an in-person office, because I was actually doing a lot of my work in other people's homes for years. But once I opened up my own office space, I always made sure that it had a corner, kind of a... a typical cozy talk therapy corner and a space where we could move around. So it's not a dance studio. It usually doesn't even have hardwood floor. There aren't like bars on the walls or anything. It's just a space where people can feel like they can lay down, they can walk around, they can jump, they can sprawl out, they can do whatever they need. I've had clients make like little fortresses with pillows in the corner. It's really about bringing your whole body into the therapy session and not feeling like we have to be or exist in our bodies in any specific way. So it looks a little different every time and obviously with every different client. But what is consistent is making sure we're paying attention to the body and the sensations and the feelings that are coming up, whether it's starting there or talking for a while and then noticing what's happening right now as this is coming up. One of the big things in dance movement therapy specifically that makes it different from other somatic approaches is that a lot of the interventions happen on a body level. And through something we call kinesthetic empathy, the dance therapist is actually utilizing their own embodied feelings and receivings, if you will, to help intervene as well. So it's not me saying, well, I feel or my experience is this. I can use my body as kind of a gauge, right? And say, hmm, I just noticed this sensation. I'm wondering if that's similar to what you're experiencing. And they can say, oh my gosh, absolutely. Or no, that's actually not my experience at all. I can say, okay, well, let's keep moving, right? Let's keep moving through that. So, you know, sometimes it's helpful. I tell people, instead of asking what's on your mind, I try to ask my clients what's on your body because we're so conditioned to just talking about what's happening and what we're feeling. I want to know what you're experiencing, right? How are you moving in this moment? What are you noticing about how your mental health is influencing how you're moving through life? Mm-hmm. That's one of the quotes that I read, movement as the extension of the self. And therefore, when you change your body, you change your mind. It's such a subversion of the like, I think therefore I am kind of, you know, old school idea that we're sort of very much like top down. So this idea of when we change our bodies, we change our minds. Yeah, because I mean, really at the heart of it, that's the first piece that's developed, right? It's funny because I think the older we get, the further we get from 
our early developmental stages, we, we don't remember them, right? We didn't have those structures in place to actually help us remember, thankfully, what happened in our, you know, first year of life or more. But those are the primitive parts. Sometimes they call it like the reptilian brain that's formed first. You know, it's formed through these early movement experiences. Like this is how we relate to our world. This is how we relate to our, our caregivers, our loved ones, our family members. Yeah. And then at some point we just, we become these cognitive beings and we outgrow it, right? We're like, oh, my body served me up to this point, but the mind will take it from here. <laughs> and it's not um, a weakness. Yeah. And then movement and dance become either like movement becomes something that we do in order to change our bodies, right? In the form of exercise that we move to get stronger, to get fitter, or we dance as a skill, right? Like the, the dance becomes something that is a skill. So we kind of lose that early association to movement and dance, which is being embodied. It's just what it is to live in a body. We kind of, as adults, I think we're so at risk of taking movement and dance away from those original purposes and having them be like an a means to an end. Yeah. Well, look at the social constructs. Like if you see a three-year-old dancing in the grocery store, most times you're like, oh, that's so cute. You know, you take out your phone, you start videotaping it. But if you see a 33-year-old dancing in the aisle of the grocery store, you stare at them, right? You start to think, oh, there's something <laughs> going on there, right? Or we might even use the word crazy. But why? You know, why is it so hard for us to see movement or dance as simply a need to express something or a need to talk what words alone don't meet? I know it's not a coincidence that during the pandemic, especially, everyone turned to TikTok dance challenges. <laughs> Well, almost everyone. That's right. Either you were watching it or you were doing it, you know? And I know we talk ourselves into this like, oh, it's entertainment. Oh, it's entertaining. But all the while, we don't even realize the science, right? Like the, the emotional need that is movement and dance that was really helping a lot of us get through that really challenging or still helping us get through that really challenging time. And the antidote to feeling hemmed in, tightened in, locked down, right, is to feel experiences of being like agentic and free and able to move inside of our bodies, even when our world was very small. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So towards the end of your book, one of your chapters is called The Dance of Resilience. Mm -hmm. And you talk about resilience as more than just recovery or bouncing back. You talk about resilience as the ability to become a new version of ourselves in order to adapt and thrive while faced with a challenging circumstance. Mm -hmm. So help us understand this, I, how, you're, how you think about resilience and then how you help us capture that sense of resilience as an embodied practice. Because I, had I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't read about it that way. And I, you really captivated something there for me. Yeah, thanks. Um. That was one of my favorite chapters. <laughs> uh, also, just mm. because I, I liked I liked the title, you know, I was actually able to bring dance in because that's that's one of the few areas where I actually use the word dance outside of the introduction where I talk about being a dance movement therapist and what that is. You know, a lot of that came from my work uh, early on with with individuals that were diagnosed with dementia or some type of memory or cognitive impairment, and whether it was caregivers that were needing to be resilient through the diagnosis or even people 
you know, especially someone living with an early diagnosis or aware of their diagnosis, this idea of building resilience through this experience, you know, that if I'm looking to bounce back, but as I age, this is going to degenerate, there is no bouncing back. I'm never going to go back to where I was. And so that to me suggests that resilience isn't possible for them. So if we look moving forward, right, or just moving in general, this idea of how do I build resilience, a resilient mind or body to support these changes, to support the fact that this is creating almost a new self, if you will, right? Or taking my identity with me. It came very authentically, very organically, but through my work, through even kind of my own therapy, realizing that the more robust my became, the more resilient my mind was. And rather than relying on old habits or patterns or going back to a previous way of existing, because that might not have worked for me. I was using my old movement patterns, the same ways that I move through life, drive my car, brush my teeth, exercise. I don't know that that was going to actually get me through. I don't know if that was enough resilience that I needed to get through this new experience that I had never, never had before. And yet when I started to move in new ways, expand my movement range, expand how I moved part of my body, where I moved my body, how aware I was of my body. I found that I created new pathways. I I mean, that's not unknown. We know that when we move more, we actually build more neural connections in the brain. And so building a more robust movement vocabulary actually enhanced my emotional capacity. I was able to widen that window of tolerance. I was able to not necessarily take on more because it's not always, we don't always want to take on more, but it was really about handling what I was given. And sometimes just being able to be present with it instead of immediately, you know, numbing over, scrolling on my phone, checking out. There's a quote from Ermgard Bartoniev. Mm-hmm. Bartoniev, yeah. I'm saying that right? Who's one of the founders of Dance Movement Theory. Bartoniev. The essence of movement is change. Oftentimes, those dark nights of the soul or challenging things we go through where we are called upon to be resilient we have to change, right? We have to change because there's something happening to us that is demanding that we change our response. The old responses don't work. The old ways of coping don't work. So I love that idea that the essence of movement is change. So when I'm moving, I'm showing my body that I can actually like be in response to this challenge versus tightening up, hunkering down, being in resistance, being in denial. So I love that idea of like, working with the body during a challenging time in order to show myself that I can be resilient in the face of this. I can learn some new patterns, change and adapt and flex with this challenge. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I, I hope that it also kind of simplifies what movement is. You know, I'm not asking people to try on a new exercise. I'm not asking you to go to the gym five days a week after a, you know, a diagnosis of something or a trauma. The idea is that we see movement as exactly what it is, which is a shift or change in posture. It's a change in perspective so that when I get up and move to the, a different room or I gesture with my hand, I breathe like that is always change. There's change on a body level And at some point, if I'm able to do that, then maybe I'm able to make other changes as well. 
Okay, so we have a listener question to go into, but I want to, before we do that, in this chapter about the dance of resilience, you talk about three elements, playfulness, improvisation, and creativity. And this got me thinking about my couples, about couples therapy, about intimate relationships, and how those three elements of playfulness, improvisation, and creativity are tools, because so often what happens in couple dances, we, we often talk about it as like a couple dance or a cycle or a pattern that couples get locked into where, you know, partner A says, you know, you don't and you never and I'm so and we keep having the same conversation over and over again. And partner B says, yeah, but you don't and you're so and you don't understand and you don't see it. And that that's like that kind of cycle gets so embedded and what's missing there is playfulness, improvisation, creativity. So what's your... Like how, what are, what's available for couples around moving out of the words back and forth, back and forth, back and forth into something that is more embodied? Do you have ideas of how couples might make use of some dance movement principles together to help get unstuck or to experience a new perspective on a problem? Absolutely. My mind was like, oh, I have so many, but I'm going to like, Go back to a basic. (laughs) So my first thought was actually like, oh, dance. But I know that that can be overwhelming for some people. And depending on how close you want to get to your partner or how close you feel to your partner, we don't have to jump into dance. Something that you can do is it's not proprietary to dance therapy, but something that a lot of dance therapists use is called mirroring. And it's exactly how it sounds. So instead of looking at yourself in a mirror, you actually want your partner to be that mirror. And the hard thing is we we have to be very aware that we're not judging the movement, which can be hard. We also don't want to rush or create our own movement. It really becomes about being so present in the moment to your partner that you have to take their lead. You have to kind of follow as much with as, with as much detail as possible, right? So as an example, if your partner is using their right foot, you will use your left foot. And that might be really uncomfortable for you, but it's about mirroring what you're seeing. Um, and so I will invite people to take turns, right? It can You can do it for 30 seconds or less. It does not have to be this time intensive thing. But the questions after I think are what's really important. How did it feel? Which did you prefer, right? Being the leader or the follower. And what did you notice? What did you notice about having to just witness and feel what it's like to move as the other person? Was there resentment? Was the person moving too slow for you? Were they moving too fast? Did they take up too much space? Like these are all elements of movement that we can start to think of and look at when we are in relationship with someone that we often overlook. That's a great one, right? So mirroring. So we're, we're face to face. And when you, as you move your hand like this, my hand is kind of matching your movement pattern. You move your leg like this and my leg is matching your movement pattern. I love, and, and people are in distinct roles. Right. And you can do it far apart. You don't have to be very close together. There's no touching necessarily involved and it'll be interesting. I mean, I've done it with couples, but I've also done it in different dyads and it's interesting to see Sometimes people will kind of be coy, you know, like go real fast to see if the per- if they can, you know, get the person to slip up or like these games that we play, these tricks that we play sometimes. And um, it does. It really 
metaphorically provides a mirror for communication. Times when I have um, led couples retreats and I've done variations of this kind of a, a practice, one thing that often can come forward is just a really big swell of love for the partner. Like I have not looked at my partner's knee in a long time. Like just a sense of like really appreciating and noticing their partner's body or their par- how their partner moves. And there can it can be, I mean, I think it is, uh, something like this, a mirroring exercise can sort of, as you're naming it, can sort of highlight challenges we're having. It also can shift challenges that we're having. And so it might, it's it's really an opportunity to be present to whatever you notice and to take responsibility for what, for whatever you notice, the discomfort in leading, the discomfort in following. What does that remind you of? It's just like a, it's a little experiment. So it has to be done, super low risk, high creativity, no expectation of any particular outcome, except let's just try Let's just create an experience of each other that's a bit different than the one that we're having right now. Yeah. And what you're speaking to is empathy. I mean, when we move in someone else's shoes, so to speak, right, when we, when we attempt to interact or understand their experience through how their body moves, right? Because I can't be someone else's body. I'll never actually know the other person's entire experience, we build empathy. So I can look back and say, wow, I, I didn't know that's what you were going through, or I've never experienced it like that before. And we can, we can have a new appreciation for our partner. We can have appreciation for ourselves. It's, it's not a simple exercise. It sounds simple, but it can be pretty groundbreaking. No, uh-uh, no. <laughs> like, I, like sometimes there's this, the disclaimer of like, don't try it alone. <laughs> or like, don't try this at home. You, right. You can. Do not try this at home. You can. <laughs> but just, I always like to say, when you move more, you will feel more. And if you're not used to moving in relationship to your partner, you will feel a lot. And it can feel overwhelming. So it's always helpful to yeah. have someone to do it with or to witness that with you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go on to our listener question, which comes to us from Ijoma, who writes in from Lagos, Nigeria, and she uses she, her pronouns. And so what Ijoma writes is, hi, Dr. Solomon, greetings from Lagos, Nigeria. I love your podcast. You have no idea how much they are helping my growth and relational and self-awareness journey. I would like you please to delve into the topic of emotional regulation and self-soothing, that is essential skills techniques and strategies one can explore during conflict, especially in the heat of the moment with a partner, with family, with work relations, um, and after such conflicts. I look forward to enjoying what you have to share on the topic. Warm regards. So Erica, what, where do you want to start in terms of regulation and self-soothing? Some of your most treasured skills and techniques and strategies, especially that it sounds like she's wanting us to think about in the heat of the moment when a difficult conversation yeah. is happening. So originally in my head, as you were reading that out loud, I was like, okay, regulation tactics. Oh, okay. Self-soothing. And then actually my mind trajectory changed when it was in the heat of the moment, because I think that when we are in conflict, what we often do is bypass the pain and discomfort that we're feeling because it's uncomfortable. And what we actually need to do is, and I talk about this pretty early on in the book is be with what you're feeling like, and not just mentally, but when you're in that conflict, can you pause and notice physically what's happening? Are my fists clenched? 
Is my heart racing? Am I feeling warm? Am I making eye contact with my partner? I've definitely had experiences where all of a sudden I realized that either I can't make eye contact, I don't feel comfortable making eye contact, or I've just lost eye contact. Like that's a big, that's a big shift. It doesn't feel that way. And we might not even realize it because, you know, we're used to looking down or we're looking at our phone, but being aware of what we're experiencing in the conflict, taking a pause, a a hesitation, or maybe even saying, time out. I need to check in with myself and notice what's going on because if I don't, I might say X, Y, Z. I might run out of the room. I might explode, right? We want to respond, not react. And response happens in the feeling, in the sensation. So if you're more of a visual person, if you're more of like um, an auditory person, like you can write it down, you can speak it out loud, you can ask for a time, you know, kind of like take a time out and, and sit in it for a moment by yourself. Maybe you want to do it in relation and you say to the person, pause, this is what I'm feeling right now. You go, <laughs> right? Like, let's both check in what is going on in our bodies because that can be all the difference, right? That can make all the difference between saying something, not saying something, or continuing to repeat those old habits. So meeting your body where it is, noticing what's going on. And then my, my second inkling when and if you're able to do this would be finding a safe way to move through, release, recognize whatever energy that brings. So, you know, it might come as a, a pulsing, a padding, a tapping. Um, maybe it's a feeling of like weight, or stickiness, like whatever these qualities you can start to identify around the conflict, you want to find a way to playfully, creatively, improvisationally move that through your body. And that doesn't have to be done in relationship. That can be like, I'm going to go take a break in the bathroom for a moment. I'm going to take a breather outside. And I'm feeling very um, like, um, like I, I need to punch or push. And so I can do that in the air around me. I can stomp my feet on the ground. That will actually allow for this regulation. And then you can bring in things that are self-soothing, like natural rhythms, like rocking, swaying, padding, tapping, maybe a big self-hug, breathing. Some of these things wouldn't be possible if we don't meet our body where it is, because it's going to be a lot more intense than the self-soothing mechanisms we want to use. What I notice so much as you describe that is it's far less prescriptive. Like you're not saying like, if it's anger, do this. If it's sadness, do this. It really is about starting with the noticing. Right, because I don't know what sadness is in your body. I know what it's like in my, well, maybe. (laughs) Maybe I don't know what sadness is like in my body. But as the therapist, right, or as the, the, the educator in this moment, I can't say what you should do because I don't necessarily know where you're starting. I don't know what sadness or fear or anger looks like or feels like for you. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've heard it's proscriptive, not prescriptive. (laughs) Yeah. There's a ton of permission in that 
Because all you're saying, and I think this is this this really fits with all of the research also, which is in the heat of the conflict, we do need lots and lots of pauses. And the hard thing is that sense of conflict, of feeling misunderstood, of feeling not listened to, it creates such powerful urgency inside of us that we end up repeating ourselves, saying it louder, making bigger gestures in an effort to get heard. But the problem is that neither... Neither of our prefrontal cortices are online. So neither of us can access systemic thinking, empathy, compassion, big picture. So we end up in this loop where it's just, it's, it's impossible to break out of it until we do a pause. And so the way from your perspective, but what you're saying is the pause is there in order to give each partner a, a chance to check in with the body and to honor the body and to create shift in the body so that the words can be different, the listening can be different. So the pause isn't, the pause is neither punitive nor, it's not cognitive. It's not so we can like think of a solution. The pause is, I gotta, I gotta listen to my body and I can't actually listen to my body while we're in this like verbal tennis match, really. Yeah, absolutely. It actually, a brief anecdote made me think of when I was, when my husband and I were engaged and uh, we were meeting with our rabbi. I will never forget this. He, the first question he asked us is how do you fight? And so we thought it was funny. My husband gave some slides, some snide remark. And I laughed and the rabbi looked at us like, no, <laughs> like, I don't want that. You know, right. Like I'm not here to joke, you know? And we were like, Okay. So we look at each other, you know, and we had known each other for a while, but by then, but we looked at each other and I remember I said, we don't like, we, we don't fight. We, we communicate and, uh, there's not a lot that we argue on. Um, couldn't even think of the last time we argued. And he said, everybody fights. Think again, everybody fights. And that's when I realized I was like, Oh, I don't use my words. I don't like to me, fighting was anger. It was explosion. It was aggression. It was, you know, yelling at each other. I didn't yell. I got quiet. I got passive. I played the, I'm not going to speak until you speak to me. And, um, I was like, Oh, we do fight. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) Also coming from a movement therapist. I mean, I was in graduate school at that time. I was like, wow, here's where the work can start for me. I need to be aware of how I shut down. How do I close off? How do I stop speaking? Because just because I'm not saying anything doesn't mean I'm not fighting. Doesn't mean that I'm not in conflict. It means that your body needs to be listened to. That body, the constricted, shut down body, needs to be listened to and tended to as much as the escalated, you know, hot, angry body needs to be listened to and Absolutely. And both can feel really unsafe. You know, we think I'm supposed to meet myself in anger. I don't want to be with my anger. It's explosive, you know. And it can feel that way when we get to a certain point. It doesn't start that way, right? It starts as a feeling, a sensation, a tingling. And so that's the importance of that awareness, right? It's like, even if I start to feel, oh, he did that for a reason, or ooh, this is how the fight starts, that pause. Like, have a movement that suggests pause. If it's your hands up, it's your hands together. Maybe it's a timeout sign. Like use movement to even set the intention of a pause so that you can stop yourself from going down that cycle, right? Going down that habit, especially if the other partner 
can't be the one to do it. We all have our own, our own triggers, our own things. So I always say like, think of these things outside of the conflict. If it's possible, or even when the conflict is at a lower level, right? We don't want to just introduce it when we're in conflict because that's not where change happens. So start practicing them outside of conflict or practice them with yourself so that when you are in conflict, you know what you need before you get there. And that what you need in this conflict on this day might be different than what you need in this conflict two weeks from now. So I like the, I like you, know, you talked us through if there's a pause, I need to check in with my body. The next step it sounded like is that then we kind of ask the body, like, what's the movement that you need to do, body? Like, what's the movement that comes from this? And you had said, like, perhaps it is like punching the air, stomping your feet, maybe stretching really big and really tall. Maybe it's curling into a ball and coming out of a ball. Like, there's not, there's not a right movement, but there is this possibility of just like wondering, being really curious and asking your body, what's the movement that you need right now? Yeah. And voice is movement, right? It's movement, it's vibration. And so if you're still feeling like, I need to scream, you don't have to scream at the person. You can find a way to let that voice out for yourself. So, you know, maybe it's, I'm screaming into a pillow, I'm going outside and I'm just going, ah, um, that's okay. Like screaming is not bad. It's, it can meet a need. It's who are we screaming at? Why are we screaming? Right. If that's what needs to come out, then let it out, but do it for yourself and do it in a healthy, productive manner, not at the expense of someone else, right? Not, not fighting or continuing that cycle. So yeah. So voice, I mean, movements in everything. <laughs> Movement isn't everything. So, yes. Well, and throughout throughout this conversation, what I have noticed time and time again is how much social judgment we have about so many movements, right? With this one is this movement is true. Like the idea of screaming into a pillow at age, you know, 33 or 49 feels like, oh my God, who does that? But we don't, but that there's, there's a sort of a story there, right? And the fact that we perhaps don't honor that need for movement means that we end up screaming at our partner, right? Or going into a shutdown space with our partner. So it's interesting how many shoulds and shouldn'ts and rights and wrongs we have about kind of qualities of movements, tones of movements, volumes of movements. It's really interesting. I've noticed that several times in talking with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad that that's come up. And I allude to this just a little bit, but the fact that as a society, we're actually getting out of a lot of language that talks about the mind-body connection because we're texting, we're typing, we're emojiing, you know, so things like, oh, that's a pain in my neck, you know, oh, it's a weight on my shoulders. Like it's, they're starting to be phrases that we don't hear a lot anymore. We don't use anymore, but there's a reason they existed, right? Like, I mean, they're always coming out with emojis, but I'm like, oh, could they, could they do like a pain in my neck emoji? <laughs> or is like, is there like carrying the weight on my shoulders emoji, bending over backwards? I don't know. But, you know, light on my toes, head in the clouds. Like these are qualities of movement that we used to speak more to. And I think like even just because of how we communicate these days, it's, it's not as prevalent. All right. Well, Ijoma, I hope that there are some little nuggets there for you to take around this very important question. I know so many of us can relate to about kind of heat of the moment, 
skill for regulating our bodies. And I, I hear Erica and what you've said that it's, it's about in the moment practices. And it's also just the everyday, like it's the honoring the everyday movement needs so that we create increased capacity and we like widen out that zone of tolerance and we can stay a bit regulated a bit longer in a moment of difficulty with our partner or our colleague or a family member. Yeah. The window of tolerance, right? I mean, we, we hear a lot about that, especially, you know, trauma work, relational, it's not usually movement is an intervention, right? It's how, how do I, how do I manage myself when my window, right? Or when I'm out of my window. And so I think what's so lovely about movement therapy, dance movement therapy is that we actually use movement to widen the window, right? It's like, it, it can be a process through it, not just um, to help us manage it, you know, or to help us notice it, but it's, it's, um, it's part of the process, right? So yeah, movement to, to widen that window, to help with emotional capacity and regulation. It's, um, it's not, you know, I would say it's, it's, it's really for everyone. So even if you're like, oh, I'm not a mover, I don't have exercise, like that's okay. You don't have to be because honestly, if you're not moving, then you're not living. Literally, you're not living. So your book is wonderful. And that's the other thing that I would want, Ijoma, for you to know is this is a wonderful book. It's it's so you move really seamlessly between the theory and the ideas and then the practices. There's lots of practices in here that I think are really helpful. So Erica, tell us uh, before you go, if people want to, and I'm sure they will find out more about the work that you're doing. um, What's the next next step people ought to take in terms of getting to know you? Yeah, well, I love to connect with people outside of my website, which is just ericahornthal.com. I love to connect with people on social media. My platform of choice lately seems to be Instagram. Um, You can find me at the therapist who moves you. And yeah, if this work speaks to you or you're interested in more, um, you can absolutely pick up Body Aware. It's available in audiobook, ebook, and um, just wherever books are sold. And then let me know what you think. You know, if you have questions or feedback or concerns or you want more of something, yeah, don't hesitate to, to message me. We love feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how we grow. So I couldn't put everything in the book. So, you know, that leads to the next one. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Erica, for taking the time. So good to, so good to thank speak with you. Thank you, too. Take care. Thank you, Erica, for reminding us how important it is to tap into our body's power through movement and dance. And I hope that you enjoyed hearing our conversation and that it encouraged you to express yourself through dance, even if you've never tried it before. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.